Council's Rugby Career Center podcast. My name is Aaron Stein. I'm a senior fellow with the center. And uh, I'm Faisal Aitani, also a senior fellow with the center. Well, Faisal, the reason why I wanted to have you back on again for the second installment of this podcast uh, is because, again, you know, Syria is the talk of the news in the past couple of hours recently, uh, really, um, with events that have been going on in northern Aleppo, uh, with the regime, with the anti-Assad opposition, sort of the broader implications of the military movements on the ground for a whole host of issues, for the counter-ISIL strategy, for the Geneva talks. I mean, why don't we just leave it there and you pick up and tell the listeners what, what happened today. Well, uh, in summary, uh, the uh, Syrian regime forces, in uh, conjunction with uh, some Hezbollah forces and the support of the Russian Air Force, essentially uh, managed to cut off the main rebel supply line from Turkey into the key city of Aleppo, which has been heavily contested since more or less the, out, the outbreak of, of the conflict. It's a, major, it's a major military shift, both tactically and strategically, and a major blow to the insurgency's position in the north. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that became clear when the Russians intervened, what was it, in October, is that it sort of started as a trickle, where they were looking to, at that point, I think it was Holmes and Haman, or in our first podcast we were talking about, sort of, they threw us a curveball when they started going after Aleppo. But in recent weeks, I would say, starting in, in, in late November, it became very clear that the Russian and the Syrian regime strategy was focused on cutting this key supply line. Uh, and today it seems like they were able to do that. I mean, you said it has massive implications for the war in the north. I mean, let's, let's just go into a little bit. I think it's a really big deal both for, for Turkey, for the U.S. strategy, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts before we just go into it a little deeper. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, a number of things happened as a result as a result of this, this particular military development. First of all, the insurgents that have been contesting Aleppo for years have now been cut off completely from their main supply lines for the first time. Now, what that means that is that it sets the stage for regime forces to be able to either, either take the rest of the city or continue upwards, north, north, northwards towards uh, to in the area, in the direction of the Turkish border, and deal further further damage to the insurgency. Now, the balance of power in Aleppo has always been seen as sort of a gauge or barometer for the status of the, the respective power of the forces and their status. This is a major psychological blow uh, at a time when uh, the insurgency is already under heavy military pressure due to Russian bombardment. It's a major boost in morale for the regime and its allies, also something heavily needed. It also breaks the siege on the two Shia villages, Nubul and Saha, that are strategically located and that had been encircled again for, uh, for many months by, uh, by the insurgency. Of course, now it frees up, potentially frees up regime troops to undertake assaults elsewhere. Finally, last but not least, it divides northern and southern Aleppo from one another as rebel areas of operation. And it also divides Aleppo as such from the, the sort of re, the insurgent heartland in places like Idlib and Hama that are now essentially become an isolated pocket again. Uh, so it's complicated, it could play out in several ways, but uh, multi layers of analysis to understand just the sheer, sheer degree of the blow to the rebellion. Right, I and mean, I think the most, I, I think the most pressing example of this is, is just the, the, the cutting off of this northern supply route, let's say, to Turkey, allows for what I think is will be the second phase of the Russian regime operation, which is to encircle Aleppo. And if you encircle Aleppo, you can slowly start to, we know what the regime does, they starve these people, to starve and bombard these places. 
and then they can go back at a later date in sort of the parallel process, the Geneva process, um, and claim that they have all of the major population centers under regime in Russian control, Aleppo, basically the western part of the country, uh, and that you have the anti-Assad rebels stuck in Idlib, um, and actually facing threat and bombardment uh, 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 along the southern part of Idlib. Um, and then you have ISIS then controlling what it controls. And so you, you set up this scenario that, that, that Syria watchers have been warning about, uh, I think you included, that the Russians and the regime are putting themselves on the place to be the only alternative to ISIS, right? Yeah, that's correct. I think uh, you know removing uh, removing the insurgency from the equation of the battlefield has been something that is something that makes everybody's life easy, easier, with the exception of the insurgency, of course. Uh, in a sense, the regime is now able to fight one enemy, uh, and to the degree that it fights and inflicts damage on the enemy, it gains national credibility. The same thing applies exactly for Iran. Hezbollah and uh, other surrogates and, uh, and the Russian Air Force and any personnel it has on the ground. Uh, on the other hand, uh, for, uh, for ISIS, it simplifies matters somewhat because that sort of uh, the mixture in which it was stuck between the, the opposition, the Kurds, and the uh, regime forces has now also been clarified and simplified. And, uh, you know, ironically, it also makes things a bit simpler, I think, for the uh, international coalition fighting ISIS. This the presence of insurgents side by side next to territory held by ISIS and the regime has always been one of the main complicating factors and one of the sort of embarrassing, embarrassing uh, flaws in uh, the coalition strategy because the coalition could not employ the entirety of its firepower, it didn't really have any real friends on the ground other than the Kurds that it could rely on or even non-friends that it could rely on to fight ISIS. Well now they've got the Kurds and they've got the, the regime and they've got the Russians and as we were, as they have to worry less and less about the insurgent groups, their life becomes easier. And so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And but all that is short-term thinking. I mean, what, what I what I what I think in this case to the, you know, the Kurds, um, the, the aspect of the Kurds here is that I mean, you have a an U.S. anti-ISIS strategy that is self-declared focused only on ISIS to degrade and defeat it, ultimately defeat it. You have a Russian strategy. Declarations aside, to support the Assad regime, and I think we're having a very uncomfortable factor coming up here. It's where U.S., Russian, and by tangential, by parenthet, by by sort of by by connection um, to the Syrian Kurds, in that the Syrian Kurds have now placed themselves as an ally of the Russians, um, particularly west of Azaz, as they pushed out. Um, and so the regime could not have taken this little sliver of territory that it did today without the Kurds have quietly acquiesced to their presence in that area. Um, and then you have the Kurdish forces pushing west from Tishringdem, and you have an intersection inflection point coming where you have regime, Kurdish and American and Russian forces all coming together at the same point on the map. It may come in a month, it may never come because of movements on the ground, but it's a strange thing that's happening here, and more and more we aren't focusing on the Shah Assad, and we're focusing more on these, you know, at least on our case, the, the fight against ISIS. So my concern is that how this plays out more broadly, more long-term, this raises a number of issues for the U.S.-Turkey relationship, uh, and it places Kurds 
side by side with, I mean, we would replace ISIS with rebel groups that they aren't friendly with either. So that the mission to degrade and defeat ISIL, if successful, just pushes the conflict into a new stage. No, team you up there, what do you think about that? No, I, I, look, I absolutely agree. That's uh, actually been the way I felt about the strategy to begin with, which is A, I didn't think it was going to succeed. B, didn't agree that it was going to succeed, it was going to create new problems. Uh, what what we do if we push, if we manage to put ISIS, push ISIS out of this territory in Aleppo province, not to mention Alta, etc., we do it either using the regime or we do it using the Kurds, or they do it by themselves with our tacit, uh, tacit support. Either way, what you've done is supplanted these groups instead of another group. Both groups are hostile to the local population, but the local population is, at the end of the day, Sunni and Arab. Uh, I'm not sure who they'd be more hostile to, uh, the Kurds or ISIS. I think at the very least, probably both equally. Uh, and that's before we even get into the regime against whom they've been fighting, obviously, uh, obviously for years. And truth of the matter is, we actually, uh, if, our, if our policy succeeds in the narrow definition, in the sense that if we can degrade and destroy ISIS on the ground using these particular partners, and our, and our firepower, we don't really have the tools on the ground to create a lasting success. They don't exist right now. Uh, we've lost some of them, and uh, we've refused to create others. Right, I mean, but the counter argument to that is that when you start to create parallel structures inside this thing, is that you own it, right? You know, and so the counter argument to this is that yes, the regime and the Russians have made a tactical gain on the battlefield. They have cut Aleppo off, at least a major supply route to Aleppo. But in the longer term, they can't hope to succeed because you have an insurgency that's in Idlib, you have ISIS that's still brewing in the desert areas of the country. And so Bashar al-Assad may have the upper hand now, but in the longer term, he will fail. So you have a chance on the political side to broker a compromise with the Russians and the Iranians to get a more palatable candidate in place for the for the leadership that the rebels can now at least quietly support, if not being overtly hostile. Uh, I'm just curious, because that is what I think is the US play in this, and that's the rosy scenario that the US government is putting forward as they pursue the dual, the dual track. Will degrade and defeat ISIL on the one hand, and then John Kerry on the other will lead the, the political things with the Russians. I mean, do you think that the facts on the ground back this scenario is that this quagmire argument? I mean, or are the Russians playing for keeps and that they, they're willing to live with an insurgency if they keep Bashar in power? You know, I, uh, let me explain my position a bit because it, it's complicated enough to even confuse me. Uh, the, uh, the trouble is this, let's say, let's say that that is actually the objective situation that if Bashar al-Assad and his allies take territory X and Y, either they won't be able to hold on to it, or they will not be able to continue and build on those gains, or there will be a pushback from the insurgency, whatever. That aside, what I know with slightly more confidence than that is that I don't think the regime in Russia and Iran are reading it that way. I think they think that with, within their own definition of victory, I think they think they can win. And uh, by that, I mean tamping the insurgency down to a manageable level, 
protecting the key areas of Syria under Bashar al-Assad, and convincing the Western powers, not the regional powers, because I think they have no hope for convincing them, but convincing the Western powers that at the end of the day, we're partners in this project, and Bashar is our best bet. Honestly, I'm pretty sure that's the way they think, partly because every single person I've talked to from that side says that, and partly because they're not too far from being right, to be honest, as uh, observing US policy in the situation on the ground. In fact, they've been right about every single one of these things. Uh, now, are they miscalculating about the, the trajectory of the conflict? It depends. I mean, we can't be un completely un unscientific and historical either. There are things that an insurgency needs to fight. It needs supply lines, it needs popular support, it needs money, it needs foreign support. Uh, you take away one or two or three of these things, or you seriously, seriously decrease them, and insurgency can't fight anymore. And uh, it begins, the soldiers start to go home, people start to get tired, enough of them are jailed or killed, and the rest start to see it as pointless, and then life goes on. Maybe it erupts again in 20 years, but I don't think that's how they're thinking about it. No, I don't know that. If you're the Syrian government, you, you, you only have to look at the way the U.S. calculated its victory during the surge of Iraq. You know, you actually triggered something in my mind as you were speaking there. But the way we were calculating success, you know, post 2007 with the with the, the Sunni awakening was a massive decrease in the amount of attacks every single day. They weren't eliminated, but but they went down, and the insurgency became manageable. You know, so just reflecting backwards, and I, and I hate to mirror because the Syrian regime does not think like the U.S. government. But you, know, you could imagine a similar scenario unfolding. It's like we can push the insurgency out to the, to the desert. Uh, we can split the the anti-Assad position in Idlib. Uh, I don't think it's very hard. Um, and um, divide it, you mean? Divide, split. You know, uh, divide what has been a shaky sort of alliance that the Turks and the Saudis and the countries brokered. Um, and then you can start to you know divide and conquer. And I, I actually think it hinges on Aleppo, because if you can take that territory, they can credibly go back to negotiations and say, we control all the major population parts in Syria. And how could you possibly bargain on Bashar's future when he rules all the people? That's a good point. Yeah. And so I think the Russians are right to win. <laughs> no, no, that's a good point. You know, uh, one of the striking things about speaking to you know, the Iranians or Russian people, or the Russians, but mostly mostly the persons from the region, uh, is unlike the United States in 2007, 2008, and I think there is something to the analogy. Uh, uh, first of all, they're not going anywhere afterwards, they're staying. And second of all, I think they see the default mode of their existence as conflict. I don't think they have some sort of benchmark that they want to reach where, you know, life is stable and at peace and their enemies have come to terms. I think for them, if it takes perpetual force and compulsion, that's what it takes. Right. And that's uh, and that's what we're gonna do to them because that's what they would have done to us. And this is the logic of the region, right? And, uh, and because everybody shares this logic, it becomes the rational thing to, to believe. Because you can't, you can't have your enemy believe it and you be peaceable, because then you're sort of in, in deep trouble. Uh, but your idea of turning in the Aleppo gains into, into sort of diplomatic political gains I think it could either go your way, which would be a gain for the regime. The other way it could go is simply that if you put this much pressure, or and or, if you put this much pressure on the insurgency and you insist on holding talks, despite the sieges being in place and, uh, and, uh, and the barrel bombing, then the other side may just say, we're done, we don't want to go to Geneva. Right. Uh, and in that case, that's also actually a victory 
for the regime. Uh, it derails the process, obviously, but de facto it means you're the only person at the table and you continue to make military gains. But I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, I think we're recording this podcast on a Wednesday and, and on part of my Twitter feed, the Dimastura just canceled or at least suspended the talks for a few, for two weeks or a couple of weeks. You know, this news could change by the time this podcast is published. But the point is, is that how will, if the peace, if these peace talks break down, which I think most people expect them to, and you have the concurrent gains by the regime, the outside backers of the anti-Assad insurgency aren't just going to sit back and say, "Ole, you know, they're going to change their own tactics to go after this." So it gets back to just what I think is, regardless of the strategy on the U.S. side, whatever you think of it, regardless of the Russian strategy, whatever you think of it, uh, you have the ingredients for perpetual conflict. For, I don't see an end to this. Oh, I see what you're saying. I don't see an end to this, um, um, uh, regardless of who's winning, in quotes. What, what would, you know, the big unknown here is, at least to me, the big question mark is, what do these backers of this insurgency do now? Right. And why didn't they do it before this happened? Oh, that's so, a tough question. So, uh, I, what is it in their arsenal, literal and, and figurative, that would blunt blunt the momentum that uh, that the regime has. If they have it, they better use it now. Uh, and if they don't have it, that's a different story. But if they have it, yeah, sure, your scenario might play out exactly like that. Yeah, it's uh, the opinion. Uh, uh, no, I mean, for, it's, it's better for the insurgency to fight another day than to be completely destroyed now. But I'm just scratching my head and thinking, what is it that, what is it that they can throw at them that they haven't already without, the United States has obviously put, uh, Jordan red light around man pads and any sort of advancement of aircraft capability, as I understand it. And the Russian Air Force has been the main game changer here. Russian Air Force and Russian, Russian coordination, artillery support, fine, that can be countered. Uh, I mean, there are technically things that can be done here, but the United States doesn't have a will, and the others, I don't know what their calculation is, but this is the question mark for me. I don't know. Yeah, this question. So we should start to just turn towards the wrap up here, you know. but. I, there, I, 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 I would, if you had to offer policy advice, here's the policy advice uh, I, I would put, is that you have to give some teeth to the, the recent UN Security Council resolution of and trying to, no flies on I think is too far, I completely out of question, but you know, a parallel track to the Geneva talks, you know, between Kerry and Lavrov about protecting innocent civilians, you know, the, and, and it gets really sticky, you know, like in places like Aleppo because of where the front lines are and stuff like that, you know, and I'm not trying to justify the Russian position. But how do you get something to try to lift the pace and scope of Russian airstrikes? And how could you use any bit of leverage you have against them to try and freeze momentum in the diplomatic process? Because the military process, I think, is really difficult. Uh, you know, my thoughts, I, mean, I agree with you. And uh, my own thought, to be honest with you, on this whole this whole component, I agree with your analysis. Policy-wise, my thought is that that component was always silly. Uh, a, it's, uh, okay, it's a UN Security Council resolution. There's no way to enforce it, no way to compel others to enforce it, and analytically it's flawed because these things, siege, bombardment, or whatever, are a key part of military tactics. It's the regime. Is and uh, this, is, this is what they, you do when you don't have anything, any better ideas. I'm, you start I'm the, the straws here, man. <laughs> <laughs> you start the population and you, and you punish them. 
And this is a very, very powerful thing against an insurgency, which requires people to at least stand you or calculate that tolerating you in their midst is better than the price of trying to get rid of you. And in this case, if you're starving, you're starving, literally starving, and you're being bombed relentlessly by Russian area bombing, essentially, then uh, you know it makes sense for your enemy to continue to do it. Uh, because you and the insurgency will react in the way they want. You will get fed up, you will starve, and the fighters will become unpopular, and they won't have time to organize and defend themselves. All right. So I, have, I see no reason why they would stop doing this. In fact, I think they'd be stupid to do it, to stop doing it. I agree with you, but if a, if a policymaker is listening to this podcast, they're saying, tell me something I don't know, right? You know, when they listen to our conversation. So it's like, what could we recommend, you know, as a final wrap-up here? I'm not putting you on the spot, you know, what would you recommend in sort of like rec policy, concrete recommendations to address what's going on here? I mean, it could be simply to open the floodgates to bleed the Russians. Yeah, you know, I look, I look at all this really as just a reflection of the military balance on the ground. There's other things at play, of course, a thousand other things. But that's essentially, essentially where this all sprouts from, the military balance on the ground, that has to be changed. How do you do that? I mean, this brings us into the question of man paths and no-fly zones and air exclusion zones, etc. I think there are degrees of punishment and compulsion and deterrence that you can exercise against something like the Russian and, and Syrian Air Forces or the Army that don't necessarily require the imposition of a no-fly zone over the entirety of the country or even, or even contested parts of it. There's ways to raise the price for every single Russian and regime action. There's ways to raise the respective costs of that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in the air. It can be on the ground. Let's face it right now, at the moment, our, our own participation as policymakers is some small arms and ammunition to groups on the ground that we like. That's it. There's nothing else there. And in the context of this war, it's almost meaningless. Right. I, I think it should be too prompt if I had to make a recommendation. It would be too prompt. It would be to bleed them. You know, more anti-tank missiles, more things to sort of serve to uh, address the balance of power issue, uh, particularly for the regime uh, and the anti-Assad opposition. But, and then pair that with sort of the rosy scenario where you agree to rules of the road. So using deconfliction talks to say, we're not going to bomb in these areas um, because these are civilians, you know, these are rebel groups that are not ISIS. And I know you get into a whole sticky mess when you try and define it with the Russians, but I think you have to try. Um, and then for each incremental step when they bomb over that line, you know, you, you work on how to uh, blood their game. Something on their side Something on this, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's the dirty game we'll have to play, and it's not nice. Um, but when you bombard like they have been doing, I mean, they are changing aspects on the ground um, quickly, and I think it will benefit the regime. So last final wrap-up point here is in, in the next, in just the near term, I mean, how do you see this going? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, uh, just the thoughts on the military situation on the ground? Yeah, we're in the prediction territory yeah. now. I try, I try to end the podcast on like, happy notes, you know, but Syria is nothing about it is happy, so I think, you know, I think we'll just add predictions. I think they'll surround Aleppo city, and I think they'll take as much of uh, Aleppo province as they can before they actually try to take the city, if indeed they try to take the city. It'd be very costly and, uh, and very difficult. It's not absolutely necessary at present. I also think they need a big game against ISIS, and uh, I think I see them moving into the desert area around Homs and Tadwar and... Uh, taking that territory and the approaches to Damascus uh, around that area. 
I wouldn't be smart in terms of the narrative. Now we're switching towards ISIS. I don't have much to agree with. I mean, I, I, I think that's accurate. I'll just, on my side, because I deal more with Turkey and Syrian Kurds, uh, I think that you have an inflection point coming where you know, the, the Syrian Kurds will try and push and take Mabij. I mean, that's not a great prediction they've said it, you know, and that they will try and cut a deal uh, with the regime a couple months down the line for freedom of movement between Afrin Canton and the Kobani Jazeera Cantons. And that will be south of Mambij, so you'll be out of range of Turkish artillery, and you will have Roja. And that's my prediction. You have a connected Roja. Interesting. So later down the road, we'll revisit these, 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 podcast, these predictions in a later podcast, and we'll see how it uh, goes. Yes, we'll talk about it right about that. Yeah, well, thanks for joining me, Faisal, and thanks, everybody, for listening to the second installment of the podcast.